Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, February 7th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, micromorts, the unit of measurement that predicts your risk of death. How effective are they and how could we make them more effective, especially with regards to the pandemic? Plus, why Washington State is building highway overpasses for cougars. And two rappers who have been added to the Super Bowl halftime show lineup and will be making history with their performances. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Let's talk about death and statistics. Two great ways to start a podcast. So this morning, one of my favorite authors, Kurt Anderson, tweeted a newsletter from one of my favorite podcast hosts, Stephen Johnson. Johnson is a writer who hosts many shows and podcasts, but my favorite is American Innovations from Wondery. And it covers the history of inventions, things like air conditioning and auto-tune and electric television, in a kind of narrative way with characters and everything. I love it. Johnson's newsletter, Adjacent Possible, is similar. He describes it as, quote, exploring where good ideas come from and how to keep them from turning against us, end quote. And in last week's edition, he resurfaced the concept of micromorts. You may be familiar with micromorts. They've gotten a bit of attention throughout the pandemic due to their punitive usefulness in assessing one's risk of catching COVID in any given scenario. A micromort is a unit of measurement. One micromort is a one-in-a-million chance of dying. The micromort idea was proposed by Stanford professor Ronald Howard in 1968. He was an expert in decision theory and thought it would be useful for people to have a more quantitative way to make big, complicated, especially life-altering decisions. Like as Johnson gives the example, a patient weighing the risks of undergoing a medical procedure. A doctor could tell them that going forward with the procedure would be X micromorts, while not doing it would be Y micromorts. Sounds great. I mean, I would love a world that made so much sense. But in a world that rarely does make sense, forcing frameworks onto the stubborn chaos doesn't always work out. Johnson, who, like me, is a big fan of the idea of the micromort, had this critique, quote, The one problem I have with this concept, which is a problem intrinsic to these kinds of risk assessments generally, is that we don't have an intuitive understanding of very small probabilities. How risky really is a one in a million chance of dying? Is that skydiving level risk? plane crash risk, asteroid extinction event risk, we have no intuitive understanding of these odds, in part because no one bothers to teach these sorts of things in school. For the unit of measurement to be useful to a layperson, you want it to be anchored in something intelligible, the way the Celsius scale is neatly anchored in the two extremes of freezing and boiling water." End quote. I suppose that problem could be solved if the idea of the micromort ever went mainstream, and it was something close to common knowledge that skydiving is 8 micromorts per jump, giving birth is 120 to 170 micromorts, and successfully scaling Mount Everest is 37,932 micromorts. All these calculations, by the way, are from the micromort Wikipedia page. And, you know, as quantifiable as it all may be, those of us who are not statisticians still need recognizable things to compare with one another. And we've been trying to do that with COVID. Whether to emphasize the risks or to downplay them, people have employed all sorts of comparisons. The most common one is the flu. 
But even that one is not a great comparison because, for one, I think we've learned there are a lot of people that don't realize how deadly the flu can actually be for certain populations or in certain cases. And two, as Johnson points out, the flu varies a ton from year to year and, as I just said, from population to population. So instead, Johnson thinks there's another good comparison. And it's one that caught a lot of flack recently, thanks to its mention by David Leonard in the New York Times. In Leonard's case, many Many people interpreted the comparison as downplaying the continuing impacts of COVID-19, which doesn't completely seem to have been his point since the whole piece was about the need for people to get vaccinated and boosted, but I see where critics of the piece were coming from. In any case, the tangible comparison Johnson proposes and which Leonard mentioned is car crashes. Now, this is a comparison that I've bristled at in the past. I've heard people try to defend doing certain pandemic-risky activities or foregoing COVID mitigation behaviors by saying that, hey, you could get hit by a car or die in a car crash any day. You still need to live your life. Which, horrifically, tragically, is true. As Johnson points out, almost all of us personally know at least one person who has died in a car crash. And because of that enormous risk, we have things in place to mitigate that. We have seatbelts and airbags, stop signs and traffic lights, scientists pouring in hours and companies pouring in millions to make vehicles as safe as they absolutely can be. We have driver's education programs, tons of traffic laws, and if you break those, you get punished. To me, that's what masks and distancing and vaccines and mandates for any of the above are. They're seatbelts and driver's licenses. They're things that might be annoying and maybe sometimes don't even immediately make sense, but they significantly decrease each person's chance of dying when they walk around town or get behind the wheel of a a one-and-a-half-ton death machine. Despite all of these measures, could you still die or get seriously injured in or around cars? Absolutely. That is our present reality. Likewise, you might still get sick if you're vaccinated. And even if you've done as much as you possibly can, you you could get vaccinated, wear a mask everywhere you go, never spend more than 15 minutes indoors anywhere except maybe going grocery shopping, and you could still catch it from someone who hasn't taken the same precautions as you or just slipped up once. Just like you can be the safest driver in the world and still get hit by someone who wasn't being as safe or who had some kind of once-in-a-lifetime slip-up and you just happened to be in the way. Not to mention, every person's decision to drive a gas-powered car has an effect on the climate emergency, which affects all of us, and just like COVID, affects certain populations more severely than others. So we all have to decide how much we're willing to do to avoid those risks or avoid contributing to them, or at least assess what we are able to do given our circumstances. And maybe something like the Micromort could help us make that risk assessment. And in fact, Johnson pointed out that it just so happens that a two-hour car trip driving at mostly highway speeds is almost exactly a one in a million chance of dying. In other words one micromort. So maybe we could or even should use the car crash comparison to illustrate the unit of micromorts to convey COVID risk or any risk. I don't love it, but it kind of makes sense. 
Though as far as COVID goes, this all reminds me of the micro-COVID project, which I could have sworn I covered on the show back in 2020, but I couldn't find the episode I mentioned it in for the life of me, so who knows. But anyways, it was started by a group of scientists in San Francisco who were living with one another in a kind of large co-housing situation and needed a fair way to assess the various risks that each person was individually taking based on their own lifestyle, health, responsibilities, etc., that necessarily affected the risk of the rest of the group since they all lived together. And what they ultimately came up with was a rubric for calculating how many microcovids a given activity was. Inspired in part by Howard's micromorts, the group declared that a microcovid was a one in a million chance of catching covid. And the microcovid site is still up today, and it's pretty great. You can calculate just about any kind of day-to-day activity and find out your risk depending on your vaccination status, if you and others in this situation will be masked, if others there are vaccinated, how crowded it will be, what the ventilation is like, etc. And the site also proposes the idea of a risk budget. This is how many microcovids you're willing to give yourself annually. Their recommendation for a healthy person who is not in contact with vulnerable groups is an annual risk budget of 1%. That is a 1% chance of catching COVID, or 10,000 microcovids a year. That means sticking to a maximum of 200 microcovids a week. Now, just for your reference, a 30-minute grocery store run with an average number of fellow customers, if you are triple-vaxxed and wearing a KN95, is about four microcovids. A three-hour fully-booked plane flight, again with you triple-vaxxed and wearing a KN95, is 36 microcovids. Now, it's not perfect because every situation requires so many factors that can't be accounted for, even in this robust calculator, but it can be really helpful to get an idea of what your risk might be like. Now, I don't have great hope that the micro-covids or micro-morts will ever take off in a huge way, ever really become mainstream, but for those of us who do find it a useful framework, they're there for the taking. And Johnson did propose one way in which micromorts maybe could become a little more mainstream. What if we presented them like the weather? Now, the idea of a virus forecast is not at all new. It's something that's been proposed by many epidemiologists and sort of exists in some forms. But Johnson's would go beyond just the virus. It would include things like wildfires, the flu, maybe political unrest, I don't know. He gives this example of how a nightly news anchor might report it, quote, The next week looks like we'll be reaching a high of 50 micromorts thanks to the new variant, though only about 8 micromorts if you're vaccinated. For seniors, though, we'll probably see a high in the 100s, so you might want to cut back on socializing indoors, end quote. I like that the example gives different forecasts for different age groups, and like the weather, not everyone is going to choose to or will practically have to adjust their behavior based on the report. But the quantifiable information is out there for some to have a little bit more clarity, and it's an interesting broad application. It still wouldn't be specifically applicable, though. That's where the micro-COVID calculator can help a little bit more for individuals on a case-by-case basis. The problem is, as it has been this whole time, that while our individual risk profiles may vary by our health profiles and actions, those actions can affect other people, and do. Johnson acknowledges that, too, quote, Risk assessment is undoubtedly trickier with epidemics because a unit of measurement like the micromort is fundamentally personal in nature. 
It's the threat faced by a single person over a specific period. Epidemics are by definition social phenomena, and they involve evolutionary forces that shift over time. You may personally not face much risk right now, but by exposing yourself to the virus, you give it a chance to continue a chain of replication that might lead to a new, more deadly variant, or infect an immunocompromised person whose risk profile is very different from yours. But I think there's a strong case to be made that having some kind of standardized unit to describe risk would be far preferable to the vague, unanchored way that we talk about it today. End quote. We humans have destroyed so many animals' habitats over the millennia, especially over the last 200 years or so, but occasionally we try to fix what we've done sometimes using similar technology. And that's the case out in Washington, where cougars on the Olympic Peninsula have developed lower genetic diversity over the years due to inbreeding, caused as a result of them being isolated from the mainland by Interstate 5. Now, wildlife experts with the Olympic Cougar Project have been studying the cougars' patterns to determine the best place to build bridges for the cougars to safely cross the highway. If the cougars can get over the highway, they'll be able to interact with more of their own species, but also positively benefit the deer, elk, and other species in the area. The idea of a bridge just for wildlife isn't new. Fast Company reports that there are over 1,000 of them across the U.S., and $350 million was earmarked for either animal-friendly bridges or underpasses in the new infrastructure bill. Quoting Fast Company, When the U.S. built highways across the American landscape, it fragmented nature into smaller chunks of habitat where biodiversity is now shrinking. As apex predators, cougars in particular, have a major role to play in the ecosystem. Their disappearance may lead to more coyotes, fewer house cats, more rodents, and so on. And when cougars kill a large animal, they leave behind an unfinished carcass for a wide range of animals, from eagles to bears to beetles to pick at. It just rips through the ecosystem. The problem is, many cougars are now virtually stuck on the Olympic Peninsula. Hemmed in by Interstate 5 to the west and U.S. Route 12 to the south, they're cut off from natural breeding partners in the Cascade Mountains. Bridges would help increase connectivity and also reduce the roadkill created by the 1 to 2 million collisions caused by wildlife every year. End quote. Some studies say there should be an ecological crossing at every mile of freeway, which seems like a lot, but it's what a number of groups are pushing for and it could make a huge difference. And since the late 90s, ecological crossings have been being constructed every mile along a 15-mile stretch of I-90 in Washington, and now the Olympic Cougar Project, run in collaboration between Pantera, a nonprofit, not the band, and the Lower Elwha Klalem tribe, is hoping to construct a number of them along I-5. These ecological bridges and overpasses are typically vegetated, or for underpasses may have creeks running through them, so they seem just like an extension of nature. Some of them even have high sound walls that dampen noise and protect the animals. And they do work. Animals, large and small, use the bridges in large numbers, helping to restore ecosystems and biodiversity in areas where it's been stunted. It's really cool, and I definitely hope that the projects take off everywhere and get a lot more funding going forward. So usually for the Super Bowl halftime show, one or two artists are announced, and then they'll sometimes have a few surprise guests that show up during the performance. 
This year, though, five artists were announced as the headliners. Mary J. Blige, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Dr. Dre, and Kendrick Lamar. So I personally have just been curious if that'll be it, or if we're going to get even more artists popping up as surprise guests. And today, we seem to have gotten our answer. I mean, I guess it's not a surprise, since the Super Bowl is still six days away, but Dr. Dre announced that he has added two other rappers to the performance, Sean Forbes and Warren Wawa Snipe. And it's a historic move, too. Forbes and Snipe will become the Super Bowl's first-ever deaf rappers performing in the halftime show. Both of them write and perform their own music, but some reports are saying that they'll be doing onstage sign language interpreting of the headliners' music. Maybe they'll also get their original solos. The performance details are being kept a bit of a secret for now, but I hope they both get a chance to really shine here. And Snipe has actually interpreted at the Super Bowl before for the anthem and America the Beautiful last year, but never on the big halftime stage, so this is pretty cool. And as Forbes told the Detroit Free Press, quote, the doors to accessibility are busted wide open with something like this, end quote. Looking forward to seeing them both on Sunday, but that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.